You are listening to the audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, by Mitch Maloney, read by the author. Chapter 1. The Setup My earliest efforts at joke-telling came from the purest of motives, the simple pleasure of watching others laugh. In fact, they didn't even have to be a flesh-and-blood person. Whenever we took a family trip into Seattle, I would insist on a visit to Ye Old Curiosity Shop on a rotting pier at the northern tip of Elliott Bay, where there were real mummies and shrunken heads and deformed animal fetuses floating in formaldehyde. But the main attraction, as far as I was concerned, was Jolly Jack, an antique arcade automaton dressed up like a drunken sailor that would rock and convulse with maniacal laughter for the cost of a nickel. His laughter would trigger mine, and I'd beg my dad for coin after coin. My Swiss-German grandma noticed my love for yucks early on. She'd giggle along with me and called me Kleiner Clown, my very first showbiz moniker. And the peach-colored satin baby blanket she made me had a circus clown stitched right into it. Now I know that in my first book, Nothing Left to Lose, I implied that being a straight white guy was some sort of hurdle I had to jump over. And in my second book, Time to come clean. I blamed all of my personal problems on a global conspiracy. But now, I really do have nothing left to lose. And I am actually ready to come clean. So let me kick this volume off by acknowledging that I had fortune, timing, and privilege on my side from the beginning. But above everything else, or maybe because of everything else, I had slack. All the slack one could possibly hope for. Maybe a little more slack than is actually good for a person. Or at least for becoming an FC. The idea that within every successful comic is a tortured child didn't come from nowhere. Even Steve Martin, with whom I shared my baseline slack, and who had a relatively unscathed upbringing for an FC, felt compelled to include a passage in his book about his angry and occasionally violent father, to verify that he was, quote, qualified to be a comedian. And note one. But I never had that kind of luck. I only had the good kind. Oh, sure. I spiced it up as good as I could when I was talking to Terry Gross or Howard Stern. But the fact is, I was raised in a middle-to-middle-upper-middle-class household in a suburb in the Pacific Northwest that wrapped around a bleeping golf course for crying out loud. And if that wasn't enough... My parents were both Canadian, and also therapists, which is a pretty good recipe for a frictionless childhood. All encouragement, zero consequences. Yet a career in comedy was one of the few potential career paths that was not explicitly encouraged or promoted by my parents. It wasn't discouraged exactly, but at the time, stand-up wasn't quite common enough to be considered a plausible option. But pretty much everything else seemed like it was on the table. 
I spent most of my time alone in my room, writing and illustrating elaborate intergalactic adventures, but I wasn't completely antisocial. I had my breakdancing crew, the Laser Lads, where I really burned up the cardboard doing my signature moves, the worm and the wave. And I was basically an honorary brownie, courtesy of the Starwit sisters next door. I liked to entertain the sisters, Semily and Irma, and their friends before their troop meetings, recreating bits from J.P. Patches, the local TV clown, or acting out my favorite Daffy Duck cartoons, or I might do a snippet from my favorite TV show, Sanford and Son. I had a strange fascination with Red Fox as a kid. I even had a series of nightmares in which he made appearances as both friend and foe. In one, we were being chased by man-eating penguins in a Toys R Us. In another, he helped me beat up a giant grasshopper man. But the one that really stuck with me the most was when I got a sneak preview of Life in Hell. In the dream, I was doomed to walk, shivering, alone and naked, through the streets of a dead city on some small, uninhabited moon, with bombed-out skyscrapers on either side of me, as lightning cracked in the sky and icy rain pelted my skin as a massive, angry head, red fox's head, but green like the Wizard of Oz, floated above and behind me, berating me forever for every bad thing I ever did. Like I was saying, I went through a pretty intense red fox phase, and I would perform his bits from Sanford and Son for the Brownies, or the Laser Lads, or any visiting relatives. Here was one of my favorites. <clears throat> I guess you can have a little pork and beans now, and a little zucchini later. Or you can have a little zucchini now, and a little pork and beans later. End note 2 Hey, what's the deal? Darberius. Hey, Mitch, everything okay in there? Darberius, why does my voice sound like a does pop? Oh, that's the ethnological neutralization filter. Well, turn it off, please. Are you, are you finished with the impression? Sure. Sure. Just turn it off. Copy that. You're good to go, Mitch. Ethnological neutralization filter? It's a contractual condition of the transmission sponsor, Mitch. Fine. Whatever. No more Red Fox impressions, I guess. Okay, Darberius, can you just let me get back to it now, please? That will do. Just forget I'm even here. I'm trying. Anyway, people weren't so sensitive about these things back then. I even dressed up like Red Fox for Halloween once, and let's just say I'm glad that no photos ever surfaced, because that might have been another one of my trademark scandals. my earliest memories is sitting in a small alcove of my childhood home that was mirrored on all sides. I would sit in an oversized fuzzy brown beanbag chair for hours sometimes, 
staring at dozens of copies of myself, just waiting to catch one of them doing something different from what I was doing. I didn't understand how mirrors worked yet, so I figured they must be windows into other worlds, that this strange corner of my house in Fairwood Greens was somehow an interdimensional check-in point. George Carlin once said, Everybody has an entire hologram of the universe somewhere within them. And note three. Well, as I studied those other faces, it made sense to me that each one of them had to have their own universes too. But by the time I was approaching junior high, it seemed like the options in my universe had narrowed just a bit. I'd tried four or five organized sports and had zero talent or interest. Ditto for musical instruments. Same goes for math. And also science. But a future as a great author or an eminent artist were definitely within my grasp. As was another avenue that offered more immediate gratification. Renowned actor. In the sixth grade, I landed the part of Sir Toby Belch in Fairwood Elementary's production of Twelfth Night, or What You Will. My mother sewed me up a costume and shoved a pillow under my shirt, and I was ready for my first publicly sanctioned comedic performance. Shakespeare might sound a little highfalutin for the sixth grade, but underneath the iambic pentameter and the velvet pantaloons, there was a whole lot of Jolly Jack and Fred Sanford. One of my lines was, I'm sure care's an enemy to life, and that might as well have been my official motto in 1987. If I was ever going to make it as an FC, I was going to have to manufacture my own personal crisis, as I would, via what the therapist would call a narcissistic collapse. But that was still years away, because in 1987, I had slack, for as far as the eye could see. Steve Martin, Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2007, pages 27 through 29. Capsule review, exquisitely structured narrative, beautifully written. Slack score, 7.3. Snark score, 9.5. Overall FCA ranking, number two. And note two. Sanford & Son, season one, episode eight. The Great Sanford Siege. Originally aired March 3rd, 1972. Teleplay by Aaron Rubin, directed by Peter Baldwin. Scene featuring Red Fox and Demond Wilson. And note three. George Carlin with Tony Hendra. Last Words, a Memoir. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2009. Page 283. Capsule Review. Medium interesting career trajectory. Well written, but overly long. Too many childhood anecdotes. Slack score, 6.2. Snark score, minus 10. Overall FCA ranking, 47. This audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, the Mitch Maloney story, was made possible by the Seventh Reformed Church of Latter-day Witnesses. 
The Bleepers. <laughs> 